Do you remember Fish Truck? How could I forget Fish Truck? <laughs> That's so true. It was 2.30 on a Tuesday afternoon in Seattle. A truck overturns on old Highway 99 just south of downtown, and it is packed to the gills with fish. Wasn't that like frozen cod or something? Yes. Half a million dollars worth spilled all over the road. There's going to be a Sounders soccer match in four hours. Hey, should be fine. But no. Highway 99 locks up. People are rerouted into downtown, and then downtown locks up. Epic traffic jam. I got from my house, which to to Weston Hotel, five blocks about within 45 minutes of driving. I was like, I got to park the car. That's Stefan Fry, the goalie of the Seattle Sounders. He ends up parking his car in the middle of the road and running to the game. It's nearly midnight by the time they actually clear the fish truck off the roadway. Nine hours of gridlock. That was the cod incident. There also was a bee incident and a tanker truck incident. And in each of these cases, a single truck crash cripples the entire city. Thousands of commuters can't get home or to work. This is the story of how we got to this point, how Seattle grew well beyond its infrastructure, and what we did or didn't do before Amazon arrived and pushed us to where we are today. I'm Joshua McNichols. I'm Carolyn Adolph. From KUOW in Seattle, this is Primed. Traffic, street, traffic, 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 traffic. Did they hear that? And our rent has gone up 10% every single year for the last four years. If you're leaning away from the future, the future is going to win every time. This episode is about the bad decisions we made starting in the 1970s and the slow, inefficient ways that we make decisions today. This is the backdrop when people complain about today's Seattle, even though sometimes we blame those things reflexively on our biggest employer, Amazon. So how did we screw up? And are there lessons for other cities who look at our booming local economy with envy? We'll dig into that after this break. Radioactive Youth Media on KUOW. I spent the summer at KUOW with seven other teens. So many of us chose to tell our family stories of staying connected across oceans. Sitting in front of the screen is as if we are just sitting next to each other. Of course, you can't touch each other, right? But it's so close. And how we still find joy. To manage to have moments of happiness is the most rebellious act. <laughs> to hear stories from Radioactive, go to KUOW.org podcast. When Seattle was planning for Amazon back in 2010 or so, city leaders thought there would be 18,000 workers at most in Amazon's neighborhood. But we got more than twice that many people. 45,000. Yeah. What happened between Seattle and Amazon is kind of like if you were throwing a party. You had invited just a few people, but somehow word got out. And all of a sudden there are 45,000 people outside and you don't have nearly enough chips. Our failure to plan properly for the giant house party that was Amazon screwed up our city in two ways, traffic and housing. So first, let's look at traffic. This is an area where we had lots of opportunities to make things better, but we didn't. And the things we did do didn't really work. There's this one street, 
Mercer Street. We're standing on Aurora Avenue overlooking what is being termed the Mercer Mess. Traffic lines up from beyond Seattle Center and stretches eastbound until uh, you're on to Interstate 5. The folks at the traffic department tell us there's a better way to wade through all this, but it's going to cost all of us who are taxpayers. That tape is from 1977. Over the last four decades, we talked about the Mercer mess and basically did nothing about it. Then in 2010, Amazon moves in, and all of a sudden we spent $170 million trying to make Mercer better. We ended up with like nine lanes for cars. At rush hour, it's like fish truck every day. What's the worst you've seen it? What's the worst like traffic experience you had out here? Mm, on Mercer, I've probably been in, on this street for at least 45 minutes just trying to get on the freeway. So 45 minutes to go how many blocks? Probably five or six. Traffic here when I'm coming in is insane. I mean, I was stuck here on Mercer for about 20 minutes this morning. My mom was dropping me off and it took like 20 minutes just to take a left turn. <laughs> Seattle's solution to the Mercer mess was essentially tinkering with the lanes and the stoplights. It's all about the car. What we really needed there was a light rail system capable of dropping tens of thousands of people there every day from all over the region. We actually had an opportunity to do that 50 years ago. And like many smaller cities with no idea of the growth that was coming down the pike, we didn't seize it. There was this plan in the 70s called forward thrust, but we decided not to be thrust forward. We decided cars and buses were working fine, so we voted it down. It wasn't until 1996, a quarter century later, that we finally began investing in light rail. So we're building it now, but it's going to be another quarter century before the entire system is fully operational. We can't build our light rail system fast enough to get ahead of population growth. And we are not alone in being short-sighted in failing to invest for future growth. Kristen Capps of CityLab says Austin, Texas still rejects initiatives to build light rail, and it is considered to be among the top contenders for Amazon's second headquarters, HQ2. And Austin has notoriously bad traffic. Kristen Cap says even cities that have committed to light rail have fallen behind. I think the story for a lot of cities is maybe less about not building any rail and more about not building enough rail, not building uh, the kind of expansions in a timely way that they could. So maybe I'm being a jerk for asking this, but if this were Amazon's problem, would it be solved by now? You mean, how would Amazon have solved this problem? Yeah. I mean, for one thing, it probably would have thought long term, right? Because Bezos just loves to talk about the future. You have to always be leaning into the future. If you're leaning away from the future, the future is going to win every time. Never, ever, ever lean away from the future. Back in 1994, Jeff Bezos posted a job listing to a Usenet group offering positions in a well-capitalized Seattle startup. The last line of the job listing said, it's easier to invent the future than predict it. What the heck does that mean, to invent your own future? Should airplanes have wings? Should cars have square wheels or round wheels? That's Amazon's prime minister of ideas, H.B. Siegel. This wacky-sounding position actually tells you a lot about how they, as a tech company, think. How they're constantly questioning their assumptions using these wild thought exercises. Square wheels might seem pointless at first, but maybe not. You might also have a wheel that 
it changes its shape over, it goes over interesting terrain. Or you might have a wheel that is able to park on a hill. Thinking about ridiculous questions sometimes leads to new ideas. So how does that apply to Seattle and its many problems? Well, Ryan Boudinot used to work in Amazon. He doesn't work there anymore. He's a virtual reality producer now. And he was more of a soldier than a general there. But like everybody there, he was steeped in the company culture. And that means absorbing the little fortune cookie expressions that Jeff Bezos thinks up. Boudinot reached out to us via our Facebook page, and he told us what he thought inventing your own future would mean for Seattle. What are the crazy ideas that would fix the homelessness crisis in Seattle? What are the crazy ideas that would fix congestion? I mean, the idea has to be bonkers on some level, I think, in order to really be worth pursuing. You know, the people who think, well, Amazon will never succeed because the world doesn't work that way, don't understand that Amazon is in the business of changing the way that the world works. Amazon invents its own future by not being stuck on the way things work right now. So if Seattle's problem is we're stuck in mind-numbing traffic, how would Amazon have approached that? Maybe they would have thrown out their assumptions. Maybe they would have said, well, do we have to add more people to this transportation network? What if we just added people to some other transportation network? Well, actually, when you think about it, that's exactly what they're doing with HQ2. Mind blown. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so Seattle operates with bad, outdated assumptions. What else do we do wrong? Well, we're not a very decisive lot in the Pacific Northwest. More about that when we come back. I'm Ton Tan, host of Second Wave, a new podcast from KUOW. My parents escaped Vietnam in 1978. They're boat people. And I've always wondered what that was like. Uh, We're definitely in Vietnam. We're just going. We're just going with it. It's not like there's any life jackets. (laughs) On the next episode, I'm going back to where it all started, Vietnam. Go to KUOW.org slash podcast to learn more. Okay, listen to this. This is early in the process. We're hoping to have some formal recommendations come to council in May. And then we'll have deliberations starting in June in council on how we want to move forward on this. So it's great that so many folks are here today at the front end of what's going to be a long process. Ah, that quote just drains the life out of you. Absolutely. And that is the sound of the Seattle process. It is a real thing. The Seattle process even has its own Wikipedia entry. Definition, seeking consensus through exhaustion. That tape is actually about building more affordable housing. We really, really value consultation and input, and we do not place a premium on decisive action, even in a crisis. And we are definitely in a crisis. Housing costs are rising faster here than anywhere else in the country. Rents in Seattle are growing eight times faster than the national average. That's according to Zillow. And last year, the average price of a home in Seattle went up by 13%. It stands now at around three quarters of a million dollars. You know, you do what you can, but the rents just keep going up and up and up and up and up. And eventually you're out on the street. And our rent has gone up 10% every single year for the last four years, which is an incredible amount for people on fixed incomes. That is the sound of a crisis. So, Seattle's political system is responding to this fast-moving crisis with our traditional, glacial, inefficient system of seeking consensus among stakeholders. We are moving way too slow. So let's ask this again. 
How might Amazon have approached our housing crisis? There's a hint in one of their principles as a company. Disagree and commit. You fight over what's the best solution, and then there's a cutoff point. And whatever decision is made, everybody throws themselves behind making it work. So that when it fails, you can't say it was because of politics. It was because it was a bad idea, and now you have the data to prove it. So then you have to be willing to change your mind and pivot quickly to a new approach. Anybody who doesn't change their mind a lot is dramatically underestimating the complexity of the world that we live in. Just learn from your failures and move on. Yeah, here's an example. Amazon had this auction site. It was designed to compete with eBay that turned out to be a complete boondoggle. Bezos loved it, but when it failed, he cut it off like a dying tree limb. Here's Ryan Boudinot. In the government, if something fails, it's a big public issue. It's a PR nightmare, and it's likely that someone will get voted out of office. Whereas with Amazon, if something fails, they're just very sober-minded about why it failed, and they figure out what went wrong, and they figure out what's valuable about it and what can be salvaged from that. Okay, to recap... We have diagnosed some problems in our cultural and political DNA that left us unprepared for Amazon. We could have made some smarter long-term decisions starting in the 1970s, and we definitely could streamline the way we make decisions. And we need to recognize when we fail. There's a word to describe how Seattle approaches its problems. And it isn't inefficiency. It isn't stagnation. It's called democracy. You know, sometimes we hear this idea coming from tech companies that the problems of government can somehow be fixed by the magic pixie dust of disruption and innovation. But that ignores that these systems were built over decades for a reason. Ron Sims was the King County executive when Amazon's growth started to explode. Government is a series of laws, and you're restrained by those laws. Uh, You have no choice. So you just simply cannot do what um, the private sector does, which is they can move with agility that government is not allowed to. We are, our purpose is greater than any single company interest. Sure, local governments were responding slowly. But maybe if you look at it another way, they were responding deliberately. Right. I mean, we talk about the Seattle process as slowing things down, and it does. But on the other hand, it's there to protect people from danger and injustice. It's there to keep us from building cheap fire trap apartments that burn to the ground. It's there to keep us from tearing down the best parts of our city, like the Pike Place Market or the Space Needle. Or our first Starbucks store. Really? (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, the fact that Seattle chose to move deliberately didn't keep Amazon from moving just as fast as it wanted to. So we made some boneheaded decisions over the last 40 years. And our political culture moves at a glacial pace. Well, we did this in the name of democracy. But Amazon's growth steamrolled us. And future HQ2 cities, make sure that you learn from that. Also, maybe we could all learn a few things from Amazon. So they have an extremely long view of, of history and their, and their place in it. And I think, you know, Jeff Bezos, who once spent millions of dollars building a clock in the desert that will tell time for 10,000 years, you know, he's not thinking in terms of the next election cycle. I don't know how you get politicians to do that. 
I mean, I mean, <laughs> yeah. how, how do you tell it's, a politician, you just need to think past the next election cycle? Right. That's, well, there you go. That's a big, <laughs> that's the challenge. We have this nostalgia for how things were. And we have these forces that are changing things without a lot of consultation. Kristen Caps of CityLab thinks American cities are at something of a crossroads. He says, we might have to choose between the city we love and a city that can accommodate everyone. It just seems increasingly that you kind of can't have both. You can't keep cities the way that they used to be. And you can't, you can't do that while you also make it a place where people can afford to live. That means longtime residents, newcomers, and the company that has honestly been a golden goose. So HQ2 Cities, these are the kinds of choices you're going to have to make. We've been looking at Amazon's relationship to Seattle as a city. Next time, we're going to switch gears. Seattle residents, like everyone else on the planet, have another relationship with Amazon, a consumer relationship, and many of them feel just a little bit conflicted about it. Amazon guilt. That's next time on Primed. Primed is a production of KUOW Public Radio in Seattle. Our editor is Carol Smith. Our producers are Posey Gruner and Matt Martin. Our managing producer is Brendan Sweeney. We got help this episode from Whitney Henry Lester. Our theme is Ripples on an Evaporated Lake by Raymond Scott. You also heard Heartline by Pesner, a Seattle artist. You can find links to their work on our website. Special thanks to our friends at City Lab and to everyone at KUOW who made this thing happen. Thanks. Thanks.